Hey friends, this is Allison Steele, and you're listening to Unravel with Allison, a show where I take a concept that's got me in knots, and we unravel it together. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. So today's concept, we are going to talk about intuition. Some people get a feeling packed with information, and sometimes it's information about the future, other times it's a knowing of the right thing that needs to be done, or just full awareness of the feelings. But as time reveals, it often plays out as it was delivered. Folks with a reliable intuition trusted over their conscious preference. So why do some people have this and others don't? I considered myself someone who doesn't have this gift. And I considered it a gift, seeing it as like a primal connection that was factored out of my DNA for some reason. And I still studied it and explored it because I was very impressed by it, even though I didn't think I had access to it. So I feel a lot of feelings and I express them all before I even understand why. I cry all the time to express sadness, happiness, joy, fear, just about everything. Um, And I process my feelings first through the emotion and then through logic because I believe that every feeling is linked to a thought. So I feel and then I think. And from the outside, it seems like intuition has all of that feeling, emotion, processing all in an instant and with bonus features. So I studied prophets, Bibles, resonance, energy, universal laws, quantum physics, all trying to understand intuition. But I was trying to understand it from the result that I saw it as. So I started to shift to focus on the process. Those who value their intuition have experienced and reflected upon enough encounters to consider their innate sense of awareness as a reliable decision-making tool. I decided to break down prophetic variability in the scientific method, or an easier way to put it would be your expectations versus reality. So prophecy to me is like a hypothesis or a prediction. Anyone can actually like prophesize, but a hypothesis must be modeled and tested to produce a result that will then be considered in relation to the hypothesis. So we evaluate the hypothesis based on our modeling. Did we see what we thought we would see? And with prophecy and intuitive hits, um, those are proven naturally as they unravel over time and space. Again, the values derived from the accuracy of the results in relation to the expected outcome. I valued intuition as prophecy, and I really had to start changing that narrative. If a prophecy is like formulating a hypothesis or a prediction, then I can prophesize. You don't have to be a scientist to make hypothesis. You don't have to be a prophet to make prophecies. And so I figured if I can do that, then in some level, I probably am already doing that. I had to really sit and ask myself, how do I prophesize? What does that actually look like if I have the ability to do it and I'm possibly already doing it? What would that actually look like? The prophecy itself is like a future artistry. In the moment that you decide to paint your future, at that exact moment of creation, you have an expected outcome in mind. So to me, art is simply the sense of it's the same, but different on purpose. It doesn't have to be uh, something big, dramatic, or hold a statement or pack a punch. Just view art simply as the same, but different on purpose. And it's beautiful. That's just how this stuff works in my brain. (laughs) So in my process of this like future artistry, in relation to prophecy, I found three major players. There's indifference, passion, and fantastical. And all of these are different ways that I decide to prophesize. So the indifferent prophecy doesn't really impact me much. A passionate prophecy tends to lead to a heartbreak. And a fantastic prophecy gets me excited and lifts me up. The way that this actually plays out is like indifferent prophecy. It's like when you are 
ordering from a menu, you're pretty sure you know what to expect. Like I'm ordering this meal. I expect to be delivered this meal. It's pretty straightforward, but you also know that it's like not going to look the exact same that it does on the picture. And that's because you've dined in a restaurant before and you know how this whole thing works. So if you aren't held to that belief that it has to look just like the picture or has to taste so specific, but hey, I'm ordering this and I expect something close enough to it. There's a very small energetic exchange there. You're not putting a whole lot into the concept and you don't expect a whole lot out of it, but you know it kind of just is what it is. Close enough in this instant will be acceptable. A passionate prophecy, on the other hand, it just has the greatest potential for deliverance in um, in the most beautiful way. But if it's not cared for, it can also be devastating. And that's why I say it leads to heartbreak because I didn't really fine tune this bit. So passionate prophecy is like thinking all day about the perfect pizza, like really just looking forward to it, knowing you're going to have it later, getting stoked. And that is all you want. It's the exactness of the expectation of this is what I want and it must be this way. And when it comes, it's going to be great. And I love it. It's perfect. But sometimes that pizza is delivered with your least favorite ingredient. And that's when it comes to heartbreak is that you relied so heavily on the deliverance, the exactness of the deliverance. And now when you don't get it, it's harder to appreciate what you do have because you were so excited about what you would have. So this has a little energy on the front end. You're thinking about it in bits and pieces throughout the day. So you're, you know, excited about it. You're thinking about it. You're planning your dinner all in all. So there's like little bursts of energy going into this future feeling. And then you're delivered this pizza and it's not at all what you thought it was going to be. And you can't separate the scenario that you're in with the imperfect pizza to the feeling that you were supposed to have eating your ideal meal. Fantastic Prophecy is my favorite. Fantastic Prophecy is like an intentional over-dramatization to diminish the overall impact of the deliverance. So I am still going to order a pizza. I order what I like. I kind of know what to expect. So I'm starting from the position of indifferent prophecy of like, there is a mild preference, not that big of a deal. I can still look forward to it, whatever, but it's not going to make or break my day based on how I'm setting this up. It's just a thing that I'm doing right now. To make it fantastic, we really just overdo it on the what ifs. I like to imagine that there's a restaurant manager working at the restaurant that I just placed my order. And they're holding a contest just right now when I place that order for the most beautiful pizza ever made on the entire planet. And the cook who is in charge of making my pizza wants to win. He needs this one. He's got to have it. He is going to make this most perfect pizza for whatever the prize may be. But I just like to sit there and think, okay, my pizza's ordered and this guy is so excited to make it. Oh my goodness, I cannot wait to eat this pizza that he is so excited to make for me. And none of this is actually happening right now. And, um, you know, none of it's real. But at the same time, I get excited over this pizza, but I'm not tied to the outcome because I'm never... I'm probably never going to meet this cook. We're probably never going to have a discussion about my meal or anything about it. And it's not like I would ask him anyway, like, hey, did your manager host a contest? Or is this just a perfect pizza? You did great, man. Whatever. I'm just planning on getting a good pizza. Like, I'm planning, but I'm not tied to the result. It's a lot of energy on the front end, and it reduces the impact of deliverance on the back end. 
because by the time that pizza gets there, you're so lost in thought. It's like, oh yeah, I did order a pizza. I can't wait to eat this. So understanding prophecy from that viewpoint helped me learn that intuition is just not the same thing. It's not telling the future. Um, and it's not exactly creating the future, but it's participating with it. The interesting thing here is that a prophet is only really valued as such with substantial accuracy. So anybody can pretty much say like, I know what this is and this means this. And if they're consistently right, you're gonna start valuing their perspective. So now comfortable with my logic, I instead focused on my emotions. I outwardly emote my inner experience and I spent weeks focused on my senses and I tried to absorb information as much as possible. Um, this was a complete disaster. Like initially I was curious and excitable, but I was just an observer and I noticed so much chaos in my body that I had a hard time focusing on my literal surrounding reality. And this was especially chaotic because I detached myself from prophecy altogether at this point. I was only experiencing and observing. I was playing the what's this game, um, not what if, what's this, what's going on, I feel this way, why do I feel this way, interesting, move on to the next thing. So I was learning a lot about these little conversations of myself and how I face the world, but I, I got so separated, it's just, it's such a distractible place to be. It's fascinating and it is very distractible. It was really beautiful and terrifying and I felt just everything that I came into contact with. And I wasn't focused on like an egocentric reality. I couldn't be I couldn't be bothered to have a conversation about money or taxes or politics or or anything that included a narrative. Like I couldn't support a story anymore. I wanted to know what are we doing now? What are we doing next? I just I wasn't interested in the backstory. But I was fascinated by everything in front of me for better or for worse. Um overall though, I did I did feel better. This was actually like kind of my favorite way to spend my time was in this um, here and now space of, oh, cool, what's going on and processing and go, 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 go. Cool, 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 cool. And it was just like a cycle of this awesomeness. Um, and even when I was like slapped in the face by reality, when my situation on paper was significantly worse than what I was actually feeling, um, I didn't mind so much. And I actually, like, I started to feel a lot better. And when I say feel better, I mean my emotions were, I was just, I was lighter. I drank more water. I took more walks. I played more. I thought more. I had fewer urges. I was physically flexible. I was mentally flexible. And I was just constantly going with the flow, which was great sometimes. It was interesting because, like, I would decide to eat only when I was hungry. And that was an easy decision to make. And I was considering so much other stuff during that time frame that I didn't even consider my hunger. I just, I didn't consider it. I didn't think, oh, it's noon, it's time for lunch. There was no time frame. Time didn't really exist in this space. Uh, time was just another thing to play with. We weren't playing anymore. We were, we were observing. During this observation piece, yeah, I just, I didn't stop eating or go on a hunger strike or have any issues with my body that I felt like this needed to be done or this needed to be focused on or we need to do a diet or we need a structure. It was actually kind of none of that in that I kept getting asked, have you eaten today? This is just how partners interact with each other. They look out for each other. They take care of each other. But this was a real source of annoyance for me because I hadn't actually considered it. And when it was offered, I was starving. I was so hungry and it's because I hadn't eaten for about a day and a half other than maybe um, a string cheese during like walking from one room to another or, uh, you know, grabbing like a handful of nuts or something. 
I snacked when I was interested in snacking. I didn't have any full meals, but even the thought of consuming an entire meal at this point seemed completely absurd. Like there's no way I can take in that much food. Uh, I don't know how I could ever afford my body to take in, like, I don't know how it had the space to have a supersized meal. It seems insane once you think about the exact size of your stomach and what goes into it and how that must process and what's going on there. I mean, there was just other stuff to think about. There was better stuff to think about. There was different stuff to think about. And I wasn't hungry. I did not have the hunger. I did not, I didn't suffer. It just was until I was offered that I realized, oh, maybe I should partake in this. And it makes sense. You know, we're not supposed to starve ourselves. We're not supposed to not eat. And it sounds like that's what's that's what was going on. But it was like I was in the zone for so long that my body knew that it had reserves to work off of. And in like burning that fat, burning those fumes, you know, kind of eating itself in a way produced just a wild amount of energy for me that was, you know, I wasn't exhausted. I was very, very upbeat and excited. And maybe it was like my body's way of it was like a final push, like, hey, you got to get back to reality. This is your one last hit. Or maybe it was the opposite of that, like, hey, you don't actually need this stuff. Anyway, these are where my thoughts took me. I didn't know how to function with it. And I also wasn't trying to consider how to. I guess I just ate a little bit when someone brought it up, but it was frustrating because it was interrupting my thought patterns. No, it was just impressive. It was fun to think these thoughts. and I haven't thought these thoughts in a long time. I haven't been this curious about myself or my body or my experience in a very, very, very long time. Another thing that I found interesting was that my comfort zone seemed unsuitable. Like there were just revealing inconsistencies that didn't make any sense. I wear a fitness tracker on my wrist every day, a smartwatch, whatever. I call it a fitness tracker because that's what I focus on is, you know, how many steps did I take today? Um, what was my sleep score? All that kind of stuff. But it sends you alerts and all that kind of stuff too of, you know, hey, get up and get moving, this, this, and that. Great job. You burned a bunch of calories. Those kind of messages, hey, you just burned a bunch of calories, those would pop up when I was doing nothing except panicking in my seat for about 20 minutes. I was sitting completely still in like complete panic attack mode where I look completely okay on the outside, but I'm having a full entire breakdown on the inside. And my watch says, congratulations, pal. You did it. Keep up the good work. And how in the world am I supposed to trust this thing? Like that, that makes absolutely no sense. And then there were other times where I would be in that same physical position, sitting still. And instead of in panic attack mode, I am in deep thought. And this deep thought is, oh, what if this, what if that, what about this, what about this, if we did it this way, if we flipped it on its head, how would any of this work if it was this type of different, whatever it is, I pick a thought and then I lose it. I just take off. My brain is going a million miles an hour and I am so intrigued by my thought process that it's like, I'm like my jaw is slacked, staring at a wall before someone waves their hands in front of it. Like, hello, are you, are you still with us? And I'm frustrated and pulled back that I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking some thoughts here. <laughs> but it is so disturbing to other people to be in that zone of like real, true, deep thought that gets you carried away with yourself for who knows how long because I get cut off early because it looks really creepy to sit there motionless with your eyes open and your jaw open and I mean, I can even tell my eyes are moving back and forward. I'm so lost in this 
in this thought process that it it has to just look terrifying. But even that too, that leaves an imprint of me in my comfort zone being met with like, oh my God, what's wrong with you? And my only response is nothing. I'm just sitting here. And then, you know, it's weird. It's weird to be sitting there looking like that, behaving that way, acting that way. And it's important to um, at least acknowledge the fact that it's just weird. It's hard to not share these things out loud. But if you start to have a conversation with someone about some of these topics, it's fascinating. There's so much to be said in the conversation can get out. But for me, the conversation has to remain in my brain for me to get to the point so that I've developed my own sense of understanding. When I was in these like deep moments of thought where, you know, I'm concerning the people in my shared space, it was another interesting note that my Fitbit had also, my Fitbit started marking these as deep sleep. Like I would look at my sleep patterns and it would have a two hour window of deep sleep recorded when I was walking around or cleaning a kitchen or just doing anything that, I mean, I was very active. I was in my waking body. I was moving. I was doing everything, but my heart rate was very low and my connectivity was just on a different wavelength than my body's used to seeing, than my Fitbit is used to recording. So much so that it thought I was in deep sleep while I was awake, moving, and very much in deep thought. So I considered maybe there's a correlation here where a day of rest is kind of just a day of thought where you give yourself time to unwind. Like that's the real self-care, taking care of your thoughts and monitoring them and paying attention to what they're doing up there and um, what role you play and how they appear and disappear and if it is worth it. But that Fitbit didn't make any sense. I, I just stopped trusting anything except myself to give me an idea of what was right for me. And I was starting to really understand what was happening and what intuition was. But like I said, it, it was a walking disaster. Um, and it was mostly a disaster because I was disconnected from my feelings in a, in a new way. I started to notice like this default programming that doesn't really work for me. I carried these expectations all of my life. And at this point, it was just a couple of weeks that I tried doing this. I was just focused on my body since I didn't have any expectations to worry about. And I realized that my awareness was crucial for my bodily understanding. Like if I felt achy, I stretched until I felt a little bit better. If I felt comfort, I offered gratitude. It was just like walking around noticing an algorithm. And instead of participating with everything, I just like, 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 like like in all my outward movements. I was choosing to like different parts of what I saw. Even if I didn't appreciate the whole thing as it was, I could still find little parts to like, to reappear, and I could still say like or same. Make connections of my preference, my comfort zone, and find that all throughout the world. Anywhere I've been, I haven't been able to find something to mess with. And a worst case scenario, it's the brain, and that's where we were for for most of this journey is just hanging out in the cranium. It got to a point, though, where it felt like I was completely restructuring my bodily algorithm, and the side effects were very confusing. So I'd been diagnosed in the, previously with anxiety and depression, which I have tried to battle for years. And during this process, I was unmedicated, and I was feeling everything, and it was a lot to take on. But I started 
I, I just noticed what feeling felt like, if that makes any sense. The way that I thought I felt didn't actually match what I was feeling. I realized there's a feeling in my body that can have a lot of different meanings versus like I, I decide or I maybe don't even have awareness of what I'm feeling, but then when the, or what I'm thinking, my emotional state is, but then this feeling creeps up inside that's like, that revisits and my brain instantly goes to this means that, this means that, this means that. And I kind of just go with that flow and it wasn't a solid, it just wasn't a comfortable flow. Like elation and devastation, that physically represents itself the same exact way in my body. I started to toy with this a little bit, realizing like, okay, if they feel the same way, maybe I can actually like pick my preference. So if I'm in a situation where I feel that feeling in my body and I'm like, okay, is it elation? Is it devastation? Is it either? Is it neither? Just pick how to feel and lean into it. I was distracted and curious and asking all kinds of questions about our universe and my reality. And I was hyper fixated on everything around me. One day I was driving down the street and I noticed a street sign that I passed every single day. I'm like, why is this here? How is this originated? Who was that named after? I wonder, 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 wonder. And I just, I sparked with this, with this excitement, um, Mesmer Avenue. And I went and just started Googling some of it. So Mesmer Avenue, I mean, that's just a street. I didn't learn about why it mattered or why it's there, but I did learn about Franz Mesmer and his concept of animal magnetism. Franz Mesmer has a theory that all objects, animate and inanimate, have a natural and constant energetic transference. This is called animal magnetism. It's the state of being mesmerized. When you're mesmerized by something, it's allocated to this mesmer. And it's just, it's just insane that I learn about mesmerization by my own state of mesmerization. I was just mesmerized by a street sign and I got to learn all of this and that's kind of how cool the world works like how it, that's just the beauty of what we're doing here is that it's there's so much that matters and so much that doesn't but you find what matters by sifting through just what doesn't whatever that little spark is that's working out for you you know it doesn't have to be that hard I started to seek a balance uh, my daughter was invited to a friend's house to decorate cupcakes. She's four years old. To kill the time, she packed a bag of toys and tools just in case they needed them. And it didn't, it was apparent to me that they're not going to use these toys. They're not going to play with them. They're not going to use the tools. She's going over there to decorate cupcakes. She doesn't need this bag. But instead of arguing with her, telling her not to do it, I'm thinking, you know, my own thoughts about how we're going to end up leaving stuff behind and... You know, just another thing to waste money on, blah, 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 blah. So I hop off that train, and I just sat back and watched. And I saw what she was doing. I do fantastic prophecy in my head, but she was doing it in real time. So with every item that she packed in this bag, she's imagining herself enjoying her time with her friend. She's casting the widest net of possibilities that ultimately do not matter. She's not tied to like, I have to bring this toy and we must play with it. It's just an option, but we're going to be playing. So, you know, let's, let's factor in some options here. That's all she's doing is just factoring, casting in the widest net of possibilities that don't matter. She's excited to see her friend. She's plotting future happiness. It's like she's praying right now for then. And it's 
just the coolest thing. She's wishing for a good time. And that sentence right there, she is wishing for a good time. That's when it hit me. Intuition. That's what it is. Intuition is the process of being into wishing. It's not even so much a process as it is like an invitation. So it's a state of being that you participate with and everyone has the potential to experience it. Whether or not we realize it, you're constantly participating with it. My body sends me a signal when the time is ideal to visit and participate with this state. So it's like anytime you're acknowledging and experience a feeling in your body, you can tell your body what it means. So like I mentioned before, like one feeling can be more than one thing. Then it's like an energetic template. You get to decorate it. You get to fill in the color of your world. You have this template. This is that feeling. Do something with it. So the more I started doing this, the less I had to focus on it. The more I participated with my preference and awareness, the more I noticed consistent, favorable outcomes. And the more I practiced it, the more it revealed itself as true. If your awareness is not drawn to your feelings, your body will send a predetermined coding to transmute the energy. Basically, whatever you typically think is what your body is going to tell you to keep continuing to think. Those thoughts will re-deliver and re-deliver the more time you spend with them. Your brain is already associating these physical things with what you're speaking and thinking. Your brain makes these connections for you and tries to like process it in real time to keep you consistent. And if you're not consistently monitoring what's going on there, it just doesn't take very long to get into like a pit of despair that seems really hard to get out of. When you're not being mindful of your body and compelling thoughts, you just let the system run itself. So <laughs> a great example of this, one of my days with low clarity, I got to see firsthand how my thoughts will run off with my feelings when I am not connected. When I was pregnant with my first kid, I got told that when the baby kicks you, it's going to feel like gas bubbles. And when you're pregnant, everybody asks, how's it going? How's mom doing? How's baby doing? Can you feel the kicks? Can you do this? Are you going to do that? What's your birth plan? Da, da, da. You talk about this stuff all the time. And I didn't get that feeling. I saw my baby kick, but I didn't have like anything that was closely related to what I thought gas felt like or whatever. But I could see like a footprint coming out of my belly button. And it was just a, you know, it it was cool, but it wasn't what I was told it was. <laughs> and then I was pregnant with my second kid and I felt gas bubbles. I was like, oh, this is what I missed the first time. This isn't gas bubbles. These are baby kicks. And my stomach wasn't big enough to realize they were baby kicks. I couldn't see the footprint anymore. But the structure of my womb was literally different between the two kids. One had excessive fluid. The other one didn't. So I got to feel it more with that second because there was just... Um, there was less space for that impact to get lost across. Cool stuff. Anyway, not the point of the story. Point of the story is I am in this, you know, week of hyperfixation, focused on the body, whatever. I forgot all of this stuff about the baby and the gas until I was driving one day and I felt a kick and I was already in a bad mood and I didn't have much clarity and I, I just knew what I felt and I was like, oh my gosh, please no. I don't want another kid. I can't handle another kid. I... Why? Why did I just feel a kick? This cannot be real. Like genuine, absolute, complete terror. And then I realized I was on my period. I have not participated in the activities required to initiate conception. And I'm actually just gassy. <laughs> but I knew all of those things, decided all those things were true, 
My body knew I decided all of those things were true. When I felt that feeling, it gave me what I knew was true. And look what I did with it. <laughs> I set myself into pure terror, pure panic mode for honestly like a good few seconds that I, I genuinely was, I just was having a bad day. And my first thought was that I'm probably pregnant and I believed it to be true, even though there was no evidence to support it. There was nothing other than my experience to validate it because it wasn't real and it's not real, but it was so real. You would have thought it was true. I absolutely believed I was pregnant for those 12 seconds. It's amazing what your brain will take off with when you're not paying attention to what it's doing. So I started, I just questioned all of it at this point. I got back to the anxiety and the fussiness of that. You know, nobody wants to live with anxiety. And it's something when you get the diagnosis, when I got the diagnosis, it didn't make sense for me. So I was young and told my mom, my stomach felt weird and I didn't like it. I'm a parent now. I know how this goes. They just know that tummy troubles are usually very messy. They, you just don't mess around with them. You don't mess around. You know, we'd spend hours like sitting on the toilet waiting for something to happen. And that's not why my stomach hurt. Ultimately, like we go to a doctor. So I'm probably like 10 years old at this point, And my doctor is asking me like, well, do you have regular bowel movements? And I'm like, first of all, what are bowel movements? And he asked to explain that. I'm like, great. What does it mean that they're regular? Because I, I mean, they happen. They're not right now, I suppose. But um, that doesn't bother me. But I suppose it's not regular. I don't know what regular is. What am I supposed to compare it to? Is there a chart? How are we even supposed to know this when a doctor asks us these things? Um, I just didn't have a frame of reference. It's not something that I focused on, calculated, kept track of. I was just 10. It was just a thing that happened. I went to the bathroom. Sometimes I didn't. I don't know. What are you supposed to say? But we focused a lot on the measurable patterns. And then we took behavior into consideration. And by the time it was all said and done and the labs were done and this, this and that, it was decided that I suffer from anxiety. And I asked him, what does that mean? And he gave me a list of symptoms that were in alignment with my body. They said I would feel if I was anxious is what I often felt, though I didn't have the anxiety tag to put on it. I asked him how I got it. How did I get anxiety? They said, it's created by your ruminating thoughts. And when I expressed that I didn't have anything weighing that heavily on my mind, they insisted that it was on the subconscious level, but also maybe a chemical imbalance. Anyway, I was medicated on and off for this for over 20 years, and it wasn't until this exact experiment that I discovered what was happening or changed what was happening. Um, my initial complaint of having a weird stomach wasn't a stomach ache. It wasn't stomach pains. It was just a noticing of this invitation. The weird feeling is just like engulfed in this energetic possibility where it's, it's just butterflies in my stomach. That's what people talk about, and that's what I can compare it best to. Butterflies in your stomach is what I complained of because I didn't know what it was. I was curious about it and just noted that it felt weird. And I got hit with the anxiety tag that I chose to carry through all these years, but I didn't know any better. I didn't know any better at all. I didn't know what to do with it, but it's just butterflies in your stomach. And when you think about the impact of the butterfly effect, I mean, it's, it's worth exploring. For most of my life, I considered this feeling to be anxiety, but when I had time to notice it and it insisted on being noticed, it was bad and dangerous and unhelpful. And it hindered me from fully participating in my life. When I was hyper-focused on my body, I realized that joy and fear both feel the same way, butterflies. They always have. 
but I never noticed it because I was too busy participating with it. When I'm out and about having such a great mood and I'm having a blast with my friends, I'm just thinking about what we're doing. Um, when I'm having a terrible mood, I don't really consider about how I feel either. I kind of just get lost down the mind rabbit hole of like, what's this, what's going on and why? This time I just participated with it. I slowed down and noticed it enough to realize these connections existed. I saw how anxiety showed up when I didn't have an outcome in mind. That was my danger. I saw how my first initial future thought of what's next was typically awful. And I started to put this all together and I feel anxious. I stopped calling it anxiety. I've got a case of the somethings. That's what we call it now. I'm in the driver's seat. My anxiety is just another case. So we're going to crack it open and see what's going on. There's an uncolored template in here. It's my responsibility to mindfully alter that surface. I acknowledge the butterflies. Something is going to happen. And then I start turning it into a what if scenario. Fantastic prophecy, because that's my favorite. We're going to go on override on the front end because you've got all this energy to expel. So you use that energy in the front end to kind of boost us into where we want to be. But again, we're not tied to where we want to be. We're shooting for the mood and not the actual outcome because the mood is going to like kind of whirlwind you to the next phase. So if my first thought is typically horrible, I just default that to the worst case scenario. And then I start to build upon with extravagance, big wishful alternatives. And usually I'll play this game with myself until the feel, until the feeling disappears, or I just like feel lighter and flexible after, after just thinking with myself for a while, just having these little conversations back and forth of uh, this feels this, why does that feel that? Whatever, you gotta talk to yourself. Um, now I no longer question if intuition is divine or reliable information. I thought intuition was something that you either have or you don't. Like most things in life, it's important to acknowledge that it's available for exploration. And it's important to explore what something means to you until it sits right with you. And when I restructured my body with all these new conceptions, untethered to an outcome, I really began to live freely. My butterflies are an intuitive notion that there's energy available and I get to decide how to use that. And when I practice it, I discover that it shows up exactly how I told it to. We have to stop lying to ourselves. Anxiety never felt like the truth for me. That never felt like something I wanted, but I understood it. I understood it one way and fully embodied it that way. I experienced anxiety for years in the full medical application of the term, but I missed out on a lot by accommodating it. And I still fall back into old patterns, but I'm reminded with every butterfly that it doesn't actually have to be this way. I prompt my mind with a new idea. I practice it. I reflect. And if it's worthwhile, I continue to integrate until the algorithms offer me an echo chamber of peace. I stopped telling myself what I thought was the truth. Every notion of this must be that was now countered with what else could it be? Or what if it was like this? Until I'm freed from the residual bitterness that accompanies the feeling from years of untruth that were embedded as exactness. This is not a state of existence. It's a state of being. It's not a gift. It's a learned skill that is developed. Until you spend time with it, you don't get to develop it. Intuition is just into wishing. You're into wishing your future and you decide how to paint it. Now, back to the beginning here, there was a piece of the intuition puzzle that was tied to divinity or future telling or outcome prediction. And that's why I started with prophecy. What was interesting here is that the prophecy and the prophet 
is again only valued when there's consistent outcomes that can verifiably calculate your relationship with your intuition. Just lived experience, trying new things and reflecting upon it, deciding what things mean. This is all that we're actually doing, but we usually let our bodies do it itself. If we hadn't spent time building this relationship with our intuition, we really don't get to participate in that. So I wonder, are people telling the future or are people planning it? Are we creating it literally in this process? I'll leave you with a story about The Simpsons. There's this idea out there that The Simpsons, the TV show that's been on TV forever, predicts the future. <laughs> you can look this up anywhere. There's just a lot of weird scenarios where The Simpsons put out an episode and then like five years down the road, the thing that they predicted, which was so outlandish at the time that they aired it, um, it would never expect it to become true. But then five years down the road, like I said, it is true. So what? how does this work? I spent a lot of time wondering about this, um, if The Simpsons predicted the future or if we created the future based on what The Simpsons created for us. And, you know, we watch the episode and think about it all day or have this water cooler talk or let this intuitive process develop in real time without us noticing it, but doing it on such a large scale of a show that's been on TV for so long and a following that is just absurd. And all of these people are left with the impression of that episode that we think about it so often and so consistently or bring it up in our little thoughts or what if we are creating that reality? What if we're sending those vibes out there just by thinking about it and continuing on that initial narrative that we are not only like are continuing the narrative, but we are now like the authority figure in its creation. We bring it into reality. They may have, so it's like they may have given us the option to consider it, but our passion backing it actually brings it into reality. Like it makes it happen because people, people talk about it. People think about it. And then it just happens. The entire day that I thought about this, I kept thinking about how I look at karma. And I don't think it's, it's very close to the TV show. My name is Earl. I used to think that that was dumb because karma, karmic restructuring, I imagined, happened over long periods of time and big years and big stretches. And, um, you know, if we, we kind of go back. Um, you know, reincarnation, you're reincarnated into the new body and then the new body has to deal with all the karma that we have collectively created here, or, you know, just don't make it worse for anybody. And then you don't have new karma to break down. But, you know, in some ways there are these little karmic bubbles that, um, that we use each other to break down. You know, when you're going through something and you have somebody to open up to and they just see you for who you are and they don't have anything to say about it, you don't actually continue the narrative anymore. What you just did in that moment was meet it with peace. And that's important because it's like you're dissolving, you're dissolving your troubles. They're going away. They're met with peace. You don't have to revisit it. You don't have to work hard to find it. You just shared a moment with somebody and that was delivered to you. That bubble popped. I've looked at karma like these bubbles. Now, instead of looking at this thousand year structure of karma and doing the right thing and coming back and, you know, as a new thing and trying it again or experiencing life in a new way, I don't really look at it. I don't look at it that way because I'm doing it constantly already right now, constantly to where I see a picture of me as a kid and I say that is a thousand lifetimes ago because I've been doing so much and thinking so much and being so much and I have not considered my character development because I don't look at myself as a character. I'm a beer. I'm a doer. And that's what we're being and doing out here. 
And in that way, I get to have all of these lives, all of these experiences, all of these major impactful moments that come and go and are fleeting. And these little bubbles pop. And with every bubble, karmic bubble that pops, it's like I get a new outlook on life. And anytime I strive for a new outlook on life, I find one. I have a tendency of slipping into this mentality of midlife crisis. And this is like a 45-year-old dad move. So how does this work? Why have I felt like I'm in the middle of a crisis, a midlife crisis. Something's got to change. I got to get out of here. What's going on? I can't believe this is my life. If this is what it is, might as well buy a sports car and enjoy it while I'm here. It is just all that kind of energy that sneaks up on me every so often. I relate to the midlife crisis. And I like to think in a small window that reincarnation happens at this level. That every time I feel like I've ha I'm having another midlife crisis, that maybe I'm just having a crisis in the middle of that life and we flip the coin and do something new tomorrow. They say that like every day you wake up and it's a new day to be someone different. But when you actually try to do that, it gets met sideways with people who know your character and expect your character to sustain itself. It's kind of hard to do the inner work when you don't share it with your outer realm. I'm having this moment of understanding how this karma works for me and how I get to pop bubbles and try new lives and go on and experience it. But as I'm thinking about this, all I see in like in my mind, this is my imagination I'm working in here, and I already have this bubble concept and I'm already thinking about the Simpsons. So it's like my brain squished them together to where the bubbles, these little karmic bubbles that I imagine like fizzle out and pop like a soda pop, you know, they just go away. Now they're yellow. And usually I my thoughts don't deliver its own content. Usually like it's a call and response kind of thing where I'm like, oh, what about this? And then I see this. Oh, what about this? And when I see this. So I'm thinking about this, considering this. And then it delivers me a yellow bubble. At this time I was smoking cigarettes. I would open the filter after a cigarette just to look at how nasty and yellow it was. And I assumed that this was probably like a good mark for me to stop smoking cigarettes, that my next karmic bubble would be the cessation of smoking because it obviously doesn't help. And I just imagine how nasty and yellow everything gets. I go home that night. My partner asks me if I've heard about the new episode of The Simpsons. So I wondered. <laughs> I hadn't seen it. And I hadn't talked to him about The Simpsons. And he had no idea that I was like even considering this concept, especially for the last couple days. But here we are. He asked me if I've heard about this new episode because he saw on Reddit that a lot of people resonated with it. And I'm intrigued. So he wants to watch it and I'm I'm all for it because I um, I don't expect any answers, but I'm like, this is just so funny that I was thinking about it all day and here it is again, delivered on my doorstep. <laughs> we start to watch the episode and I tell you what, Marge is absolutely flabbergasted about like, she's having this fever dream of her being sick and the kids are growing up too fast and it starts like the opening scene is just like, the kids doing dangerous stuff that they shouldn't be doing and her try to protect them. And then there's a bubble that starts to float like a, a, a bubble. Um, they were playing in the yard and their bubbles were floating because they were playing with them. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the yellow. This is the bubble. And I paused it. I looked at my partner and I'm like, listen, I'm just going to call it out right now. Every single thing that happens in this episode is exactly what I've been feeling lately. I don't need to watch any of the rest of it. I know exactly what's coming next. I am predicting The Simpsons 
after spending all day wondering how Simpsons predictions find their way into our world, and I just did it on my own. So we watched the rest of the episode, though, and I am right. She's in a full-on fever dream fit about how her past works and everything, and it it's just so funny how this kind of bubble concept worked its way into it. But it did. It absolutely did. I don't think that somebody working for The Simpsons has some underground information and they know something that we don't. Or even that my grand theory that we may be predicting The Simpsons or creating The Simpsons predictions. I don't know. But it's important that we start thinking about something else. Considering something else. If you don't feel good, it's okay to try to feel better. And sometimes when you try to feel better, it feels a lot worse. I don't know anything about predicting the future. I know that when I decide of the outcome, when my intuition hits, I do not trust that as divination. I do not trust that as the future, even though sometimes it plays out that way. That just factors back into that passionate space of prophecy that leaves me devastated when my outcome is not met as I expect it to. I don't do it anymore. And the indifference, I do it all the time. This is my micro action. This is every single tiny little thing that you do. This is your time to have a perfect fantasy. Stretch the limits. Decide exactly what you're willing to live with and just like double down, shoot beyond it. When you decide what you're willing to live with and you expect it, when it comes in below that bar, it is really hard to face. When you shoot beyond your expectations, it's such a grand level that it does not matter. It's almost unrealistic for it to play out that way. And there is immense comfort in that in knowing that you overshot it, not tied to it. But if it was a good time and you learned something new or played around with new ideas like The Simpsons creating the future or having any karmic resonance, who knows? I really don't, but I decided I do. And it's a little bit more fun this way. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unravel with Allison. If you have any feedback, questions, want to chit chat or stay up to date on new releases, follow me on Instagram at Allison K. Steele. Let's keep in touch. Again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next episode.